Hey, welcome to the Scrum GBH's Politics Podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In this episode, you're going to hear from me, Peter Kadzis, and Boston Globe columnist Joan Vinaki. The topic, as you probably guessed, is this Tuesday's primary election, which is mostly but not completely in the rearview mirror. I say not completely because as I record this introduction, we still don't know if Jesse Mermel is going to contest the outcome in the 4th Congressional District Democratic primary, where the AP called the race for Jake Auchincloss just a few hours ago. If she does, you'll probably hear us talk about it next week. For now, though, here's what the three of us made of the other races that were actually settled on Tuesday. Peter Kadzis, I want to start with a tweet you sent right after the election. You tweeted, quote, the morning after, colon, it all seems a bit anticlimactic. What did you mean? Well, first of all, that was probably tweeted around 3 or 4 a.m., so I hope no one holds it against me. At the risk of sounding like a pompous ass, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an honest answer. Um, when all of this began many months ago, meaning the congressional primary races and the senatorial race, um, I, I had a pretty clear idea of where I thought, you know, capital italics underline thought things would turn out. Um, and they pretty much did. Now, the journey between then and now was one that, like everyone else, I got wrapped up in the drama and the melodrama and the highs and lows of the campaigns, and that's what the campaign is all about. But at the end of the day, when it was all over, I just said to myself, geez, so what? Um, you know, that that's... Uh, that's, I suppose, ultimately a cynical response, but I, I think it underlines the fact that, like everyone, we get drawn into the drama of the spectacle, and that's what the spectacle is all about. Um, I hope that doesn't sound too self-serving. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. Joan Vanaki, did you have, like Peter, an is-that-all-there-is moment when the sun came up the day after the election, or do you have a different take? Well, I actually filed a column based on actually going to the library in Malden where Ed Markey, you know, accepted victory. And I have a line in the column along the lines of, it felt less electric than the moment demanded. So maybe we were kind of on the same wavelength. Um, however, I, I disagree with you somewhat, Peter. I mean, maybe I think particularly in the Senate race, something did happen. Um, uh, Kennedy lost. That's historic. Um, age beat youth. That doesn't happen all that often nowadays. And the progressives beat the establishment. So I think this, you know, some meaningful, meaningful things happened. And for a lot of reasons, maybe against the backdrop of the pandemic, um, it didn't have the same electricity that it normally would have. Peter, what about the Kennedy piece that Joan brings up? Because that's something I think from national media in particular has been getting a lot of attention as people size up the results. How big a deal is it that, I guess, for the first time ever, a Kennedy lost a race in Massachusetts? Well, it's a huge national deal. I mean, when I turned on NPR, um, you know, at 5 a.m. this morning, that was the lead story 
you know, several times throughout the hour and continued for a long time. Um, see, my observation, I think, has more to do with culture than it does has to do with politics. Um, I, I think our, our connected culture, our social media-dominated culture, um, uh, changes our, our DNA in a way that, you know, it, at least it changes mine that, you know, I get caught up in the moment and, you know, I'm always getting caught up in the moment and then retreating from it. For the rest of the nation, this was a really fresh story. And for the rest of the nation, um, it's a really big headline. I mean, it's on the front page of the New York Times. Um, um, no, there, there's no doubt it's big news. And I get so close to it that, um, you know, you know, my, my neck sort of snap. It's whiplash. It's, it's whiplash. No, I know what you mean. Given the way I process information now, everything is in and of the moment. It's all sort of micro takes. And stepping back and getting a broader perspective can be really difficult, getting a sense of the arc of the story. Joan Vanaki, before we leave the Kennedy family question, I've seen suggestions in various places that maybe Joe Kennedy can get back into politics somehow. Maybe people are talking about non-elected office, but Elizabeth Warren sent out a tweet suggesting his time in public life is not yet done. Your editorial page editor, Bina Venkatraman, tweeted that politics could use more people like Joe Kennedy right now, and it'd be nice if he got back in. But as I try to think about how that might work, at least in the realm of electoral politics, it's really hard for me to imagine it because, for example, there's no indication he wants to, but let's say Joe Kennedy decides to run for governor in a couple of years. I would think the first thing his opponents would say is, sure, Joe, you're running for governor because the Senate thing didn't work out. That's the only reason you want this job. So is there a path back into politics for him if he wants it? Well, I think there could be. Um, I don't know that it's governor. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't seem particularly interested in that. But there is another Senate seat, and there is, um, you know, like a school of speculation that if Joe Biden wins and if Elizabeth Warren is gets a cabinet position, that there could be an opening to run for Senate again. Um, would he want to do it? Who else would he have to run up against? Could it be Ayanna Presley? Could it be Maura Healy? It would be a much different race than what he thought he was running against Ed Markey. But then Ed Markey turned out not to be the pushover he thought he was going to be. And um, it, you know, every race defines itself differently. Um, I think it is interesting that the word out last night was, this isn't the end of Joe Kennedy. And if you listened carefully to his concession speech, um, he, there were lines in there that to me definitely signaled him wanting to put out the message that it's not over. He said, I would do this again in a heartbeat. Um, he was kind of referring to his own, the race that he had just run, but I thought that kind of projected that he would do this again. He talked about this unique coalition that he'd built, um, and he sort of described it in terms of an ethnically diverse group of people and and that you know they'd showed up for him and he'd showed up for them and he made it sound like he could reassemble that coalition and his his team 
So I thought if you went back and listened to what he said, he was himself saying it's not over and that that theme was picked up by others in the political world. I think he might even be more um, sort of likable and, and palatable <laughs> in another race. In this race, he basically, it wasn't like people were in love with Ed Markey. They didn't really want to choose. He forced people, I think Yvonne Abraham had a really good column that, that said it best. People didn't want to choose and he forced people to say, are you with Markey or are you with me? Um, if it's an open seat and everyone's all in, it's kind of a different dynamic. And also people kind of know him in a way that they didn't know before. So I actually think he might be a stronger candidate in another race in the future. Peter Kansas, you've been nodding your head a few times. Yeah, um, well, uh, to t take nothing away from Yvonne, um, Aaron O'Brien last night on GBH News made a similar point about being forced to choose. I don't want to stretch the analogy too much, but um, remember Richard Nixon lost the race to become governor of California, and everyone, including Nixon himself, thought he was washed up. Uh, well, as history showed us, he wasn't. Um, You're saying Joe Kennedy is Nixonian, just to be clear. No, no, no. If, if Come on, don't play that game. I said at the beginning I wanted to be careful about stretching the analogy. But to make it to the White House, someone has to invariably, they have to take hits. They have to learn how to bleed and pick themselves up again. Um, uh, look, even Donald Trump, who we think of as being Teflon or something right now, D Donald Trump has been down so many times, you know, that it defies the imagination. Um, and again, I'm not comparing Kennedy to Donald Trump. It, it's the act of shedding blood, standing up, and moving forward again. Um, I think when Jones suggests that there could be a federal appointment coming from a possible President Biden, that's, um, that's a very realistic thing. And being in appointed office for some period of time um, can be an excellent thing. One, you're not having to take votes on things. Um, you're, you're, you can be seen as a pure public servant in the way that, say, Hillary Clinton was seen, um, you know, by most except for the, the craziest Republicans when she was Secretary of State. So he's a young man. Um, he, he has a future ahead of him. Um, what makes him more interesting now is no one knows what that future is. People like stories that don't have endings. Let's talk about the other races that were out there that had people intrigued. I wrote a piece for GBH that ran right before the primary, talking about how there was all this unprecedented political tumult and how after decades in which it was unheard of for Democratic incumbents to get legit challenges, all of a sudden now incumbent Democrats were fair game. In retrospect, I don't think I was wrong, but those challenges didn't end up amounting to much. Alex Morse lost to Richard Neal. Robbie Goldstein lost to Stephen Lynch. Seth Moulton beat his two challengers. Are you guys surprised none of those challenges succeeded? Not really. Um, I mean, I guess if I'm going to, you know, argue the, against the side that I initially argued, in the end... <laughs> Hey, I went to law school. I can do that. <laughs> in the end, all the incumbents won. And you could look at it as that, you know, case closed. People are um, 
more interested in jumping into races, which I think is a good thing. And, and actually, Seth Moulton started it when he did it against John Tierney. Yes, he did. What got everybody all excited, I think, was Ayanna Presley taking on Michael Capuano. None of these challengers were Ayanna Presley, and that includes Joe Kennedy. So none of them were really going to change the face of politics in that dramatic a way, even if they presented themselves as progressives or if, if that was supposedly what the battle was, was going to be all about. Um, so, you know, again, circle back. All the incumbents won. You could just say end of story, no, no excitement there. But it's loosening up. Incumbency isn't this thing that you um, that's so sacred that nobody in Massachusetts is going is going to take on an incumbent. That's probably a good thing. No, Joan's right. It is a good thing. Um, but but two thoughts come to mind. One, these progressive challenges all did the incumbents huge favors because they really had to run real campaigns. Um, that's not true just of Markey in the Senate race. It's true, you know, of all three, you know, Neil, Moulton, and Lynch. The other thing is, I, I think maybe because, maybe because I live in such close proximity to Massachusetts politics, we may forget how tough and really good politically these candidates are. Massachusetts is a tough you know, it, it is a tough place to get elected to Congress from. And you say, well, if it was so tough, how did how come Capuano lost? One, he had an incredibly superior uh, opponent, you know, who was, I, I, I think, in an AOC, an AOC league. Uh, and the other thing is, um, the other thing is that Capuano... Um, didn't come off the blocks right away. But I, I would say that uh, this is something else I tweeted, that the victory of the incumbent congressman was doing a large part to just stone-cold professional, um, uh, political professionalism. Um, I hope they're all challenged next time, too. I think particularly in the Neil versus Alex Morse race, there will be a lot of bad feelings that will... Um, sort of affect the way the Democratic Party um, kind of looks at itself. There are still investigations that are supposed to be announced into how, what role the Democratic State Committee people played in helping to get out the allegations about Morse and his alleged relationships with college students. I think that there's a lot of bad feeling out of that race in particular, which could influence you know unity in this state for a while no again a very good point um i i don't think i've said anything about the morse allegations i find that many democrats have had a real double standard here if any heterosexual male candidate had had um you know flirtations or sexual relations with a college student, the female college student on the campus that said candidate um, was teaching at, um, I think they'd be shown very little mercy. Um, now, that doesn't go to the root of um, who got the ball started here. I mean, 
um, way back in the Watergate days, Renata Adler wrote a piece in the New Yorker that said, you know, reporters who were on the receiving end of links should really ask themselves who's helped, who's hurt. Now, Renata Adler conveniently never answered her own question, but um, it, it does pose an interesting litmus test. But the argument you'll hear from a lot of gay men in particular is society spent hundreds of years policing our relationships. If Alex Morse had consensual relations with other adults, that's all that matters, full stop. And to say there's anything problematic about it is tantamount to homophobia. I don't agree with that, but that's the perspective of a lot of Morris's supporters. Well, I actually wrote about it and did some reporting on the whole thing and put that question to Alex Morse. How would you judge a um, a straight, you know, uh, mayor who was were doing what you were doing with college students, and he wasn't too happy with the question. Um, but you know, as Peter pointed out, there's two, the, were the allegations true? Did they deserve to be investigated? And how were they put out? It kind of reminded me, and I think you guys, or at least Peter, will remember this. It reminded me of the controversy between Dukak's campaign and the Biden campaign way back when about whether he had lifted a speech. He did lift words from a speech, but how they did it, putting it out, which now seems very, um, you know, sort of uh, basic, sending a tape that spliced Biden's words together with the Kinnick, the, the British politician, was seen as a dirty trick. So it, it kind of rem, it, it reminds me of that, that the truth of what happened is one thing and how it co- gets out to the public is another. You know, every time I think I've got a decent grasp of Massachusetts political history, I learn something new. I did know about the Neil Kinnock plagiarism stuff. I did not know about the Dukakis campaign's role in putting it out or the argument about how they did it. So thank you for that. It's about time for us to wrap it up. But before we do, any closing thoughts on what the primary means or maybe what we should expect heading into the fall that you two want to share? One question I do have, which we haven't gotten to, is now that the primary is done, is it just going to be boring in mass politics from here on out because we pretty much know what's going to happen come November? I say that because, to state the obvious, in Massachusetts, it's pretty hard for Republicans to beat Democrats. So is there going to be any drama that compares with what we've just seen? I'll let Joan have the last word, so let me, so let me weigh in. Yeah, I, th- I think there's going to be a lot of drama at the State House. Now, a lot of that drama is going to take place behind closed doors because the pandemic has made the, uh, uh, the opaque corridors of power on Beacon Hill even more impenetrable. But there's going to be drama there. Um, you know, basically, DeLeo's leadership team were all reelected, except for the guy who was thrown off the leadership team because he was indicted. But um, nevertheless, there was still, you know, some bright young progressives, to use the P word, elected there. So I would say that there's going to be a lot of very important drama coming out of Beacon Hill, and it's very close to home, and it's going to matter to all of us. I think action will happen on Beacon Hill, and I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what Charlie Baker does in the next few weeks and months. Um, I know he's kind of like the no drama governor, but um, is he going to run again for governor? Is he going to um, think that if Trump goes down, there's a place on the national scene for someone 
like him. Um, I don't know. He seems to be sort of doing a few interesting things. And I think that, that like that's something to watch. Baker. All right. Joan Vanaki from the Boston Globe. Peter Kadzis from GBH, as we call it now. Thanks for talking this through. Thanks for having me. Bye. Take care. And as always, thanks to you for listening. Do subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already and rate us if you have a minute. Also, let us know what you think we got right and what you think we got wrong. You can email us at scrum at wgbh.org or find us on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. That's Matthews with one T. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of GBH News.